It's Monday, May 25th. We're studying 2 Peter. So grab your Bible or take a look at the screen here. And we are in chapter 2. We've dealt with the false teachers now for quite some time, but we'll learn some good things, I hope, today about Christianity in general. As we look about their, uh, as we look at their defection in uh, verse 21, that is our, that is our passage. Uh, but let's get the context because verse number 20 is critical. For if after they've escaped the defilements in the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Now, I said we were going to save a little bit of that, at least the thrust of that till today, which we will, because we see the restatement and expansion in verse 21. Look at it now. Here's our verse for today. For it would have been better for them, which is what we've seen here. Uh, we're comparing that to worst, become worse for them. Uh, it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back. That's the problem here from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then we're going to get the proverb next time. But here's the idea of this defection, this apostasy, as we called it yesterday. And we're seeing here something about the worst you know, why, why is this so bad? So we're going to deal with a few things in this passage that I think are important. And one of them has to just drive home the truth about what we have going on in the church, the visible church, regarding real Christians and non-Christians and good teachers and false teachers. So I just want to talk about this, the idea of what is it to have known the way of righteousness um, and they knew it, knowing it, right? What did they know? Well, they had this holy commandment delivered to them. They knew what it was. Here's the know, knowing, the holy commandment. It was given to them. So I just want to put a category in our minds firmly and affix it because a lot of people don't seem to have this category in their minds when they think about Christianity, about fake Christians, about uh, false teachers, about people wearing Christian labels but not genuinely being converted and people that work against the gospel of Christ within the church. All these things need to be understood. And Judas, of course, becomes a classic example of this. And I just want this passage, I know I've quoted it in 2 Peter already, but look at it again in John chapter 12, verses 6, I'm sorry, verses 4 through 6, when it speaks of Judas, uh, verse number 4, but Judas, one of his disciples, now again, there's the identifying external mark. Just like we have people in our church, they're part of the disciple gang. They're part of the, uh, what mathetos means, the word that's translated disciples. They're a learner. They're sitting there learning from Christ, which gets back to this idea of knowing, right? They know things. They've been getting the commandments of Christ. And uh, Judas is scary. If anyone qualifies for this, having delivered, having had delivered to him the commandments of the Lord, it was certainly Judas. He had it firsthand from the Lord himself. Judas, one of his disciples, right? He, who was about to betray him, which again is the contradictory contrast between being a disciple and then working against Christ, but that's exactly what we see in the false teachers, and the, the and that is a category we have to have clearly in our minds as we think through and evaluate and discern properly the church of Jesus Christ today. And he uh, objects here in the context. Why is this ointment? You remember the uh, spikenard that was poured on Christ? And it's like that was expensive. He said uh, it could have been sold for 300 denarii. That's 300 days wage. That's a lot of money. And we could have given it to the poor, quote unquote, quote unquote, right there, given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor. In other words, he preached some things here he didn't really believe. But because he was a thief, having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. And again, I reference this in, in the mindset of that 
John and the, the apostles could not have known this at the time, or they wouldn't have had him in charge of the money bag. Uh, they did this accounting afterwards, and hindsight is twenty twenty on a lot of people, and so they could look back and see after the defection of uh, John that he was not real the whole time. He had a wrong motive. He was in it for himself. Again, if these themes sound familiar, it's because that's exactly what we've been studying in Second Peter chapter 2 about the false teachers. And so I don't think we can overemphasize Judas as an example, as a categorical example of the kind of thing that we see in the church in the first century and the 21st century as it relates to seeing and knowing and discerning the real and the phony, uh, the good teachers, true teachers, and the false teachers within the church of Jesus Christ. So Judas is helpful in that regard. Now, obviously, these are people in the church, <clears throat> and I just want to make it clear, we are going to say they're non-Christians, and by that uh, label, let's just illustrate it by Jesus' frequent illustration, and that is they're wolves. When it comes to non-Christians, I just want you to see, if you're looking at the screen here, there are two kinds of wolves. Uh, they're the kinds of wolves that are talked about in Matthew 10, verse 16, and there's kinds of wolves that are talked about in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Let's read the first passage. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, what about those wolves? Well, it says you ought to beware of them, verse 17. They'll deliver you over to the courts, and they'll flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. These people are completely opposed to the people that proclaim Christ. The visible church is opposed by these wolves, and we know a lot of them in our day, just like they could see them in their day. Well, here was the, the warning in Matthew 7 earlier in Jesus' teaching about wolves, a different kind of wolf. They're in the same category, it's just they have a different role in the world. In this case, they're within the church. They're false prophets. Beware of false prophets, Matthew 7, 15 says, who come to you, here's the tricky part, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, right? That means externally they're not. They don't look that way. They're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, which is what Second Peter is trying to show. Is it selfish? Is it self-serving? Is it about money? Is it about gain? Is it about pride? Is it about the boisterous, prideful, arrogant attitudes that starts to show through and you don't see it easily? You have to be shown and the discernment needs to kick in in your own heart. And he says, look at the fruit. And yet we don't see it immediately. And that's the problem with false teaching. It can sit there in the midst of Christian radio or Christian bookstores, uh, Christian blogs. We can have all the Christian labels, but you've got to look beyond the surface to see is what's really being taught exploiting us. And if we're not stable and steady in our own souls, in our own walk with Christ, are we going to be lured down the path of false teachers? So I'm just saying there's people that can know the way of righteousness who have known it. Uh, they've been delivered the holy commandment and they look like real Christians, but they're not. One more on this, Acts chapter 20, another passage I think I've quoted in 2 Peter so far. As Paul tells the Ephesian leaders, he says, be, care be careful, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. Here's illustration again of sheep, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, of course, here's the same illustration here, fierce wolves, ravenous wolves, the wolves that are going to destroy. They will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves. They will be there within your own church. They will arise, uh, will arise men speaking twisted things. Not that they're speaking, obviously, 
on the surface contrary things, but twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. I know I've quoted that before. I just want to make it clear in your mind that some people are so simplistic in their thinking about Christianity. It's like if you call yourself a Christian, you're a Christian. And then if it pans out that down the road, there's some kind of uh, defection, well, then you must have you must have lost your Christianity. And I'm just trying to say there's a clear category in the Bible from Judas to all of these wolves that are something interior in the interior of their hearts, but exterior, there's something else. And eventually, they prove to be who they are. And that's what I'm trying to focus in here now in these words, in our English text, these four words, to turn back from. That's the defection I keep talking about. That is the apostasy. That's the turning away from something that they have given lip service to externally and even be, and have even been understood to be a part of the leadership of the church, and they've turned back. Matthew chapter 13 gives us an explanation of this, a different illustration, but an illustration that's very helpful. It's the the parable of the four soils. Now, the first soil, there's no confusion there. There's no turning back because there's no acceptance initially of the commandment that's been delivered to them. But the commandments delivered to the people who are hearing the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, that they ought to submit their lives to him, that they ought to follow him, all of that in soils two and three, uh, there is some external adherence to that. There is, as I said, a lip service to it. There is a maybe even a sincere embracing of it, but it's not genuine faith. Take a look at the illustration in verse 20. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, he's interpreting this now for us. This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. You have someone that you share the gospel with and they immediately receive it with joy. You're going to be happy and say, we've just found a convert here. Yet, he has no root in himself. There's something in the interior of his life that is not genuine. There's some kind of mixed motive. There's some kind of, 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 of non-regeneration in their lives. They endure for a while. They seem to be with us for a while. But when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And that's soil number two. Soil number three, verse 22. For what was sown among the thorns is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, which is a lot like our false teachers, the things that I want from this world, the comforts and conveniences and material advancement. He says, and the deceitfulness of riches, which is always a temptation, choke the word and it proves unfruitful, which is the whole point. What kind of fruit does it bear, that life? For what was sown on the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it and bears fruit. Now, people say, well, just like super Christians. No, no, super Christians are are, are certainly allowed for in this text in the, in the sense that there are some that are super fruitful, but they're all in the category here of the fourth soil. Keep reading. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, another 60, another 30. We have a variety of, of, of levels of productivity in the Christian life and faithfulness and stewardship, but they're all Christians bearing fruit. And as we saw yesterday, bearing fruit to the end, as we saw last time, bearing fruit to the end. They're going to endure. And that is a sign of genuine Christianity. One more illustration here, which should come uh, in our minds when we think at, as the very next illustration that Jesus gives in Matthew, he put another, par another parable before them and he said, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed seed in his field. So he's building on this same theme, the same illustration of um, agriculture. And he says, while the men were sleeping, the enemy came in and sowed seed among the wheat. So these are the sons of perdition. These are the enemies. These are the sons of the devil as we looked at in um, the text recently. They came and they sowed among the wheat and they went away and the plants came up. So that looks good. Looks a lot like real Christianity. And it bore grain. In this case, in the illustration, there seems to be something there, right? Uh, but then the weeds appeared too 
and they're they're popping up. They appeared also. The problem is there's no fruit there, no real lasting, genuine fruit. The servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, uh, did you not sow good seed in your field? Well, then how does it have weeds? Keep reading. Verse 28. And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said, then do you want us to go and gather them? Let's try and sort through them. Problem is when it's just growing up, it's hard to tell. Time's gonna tell, tribulation's gonna tell, temptations of the, of the world and, and material things and riches are gonna tell. He says, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you uproot the wheat along with them, right? So we have to be careful in terms of just suspecting someone to be real or not real in the early stages when the evidence is not obvious. Let them grow up together until the harvest. And at that time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them and into bundles and let them be burned. But the wheat gathered into my barn, there's going to be a sorting out, often a sorting out within time in the temporal span of the church age, in the sense that we get to see sometimes, like Peter is pointing out in 2 Peter 2, this is a false teacher, exclude him from the assembly. Or in the end, there'll be phonies and fakes that make it all the way to the end that will say, as we saw in Matthew 7, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things? He'll say, depart from me. I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness or wickedness, as the ESV says. So turning back from it is what happens because there's two kinds of people in the church, both real and not real. Well, what's with this whole principle for it would have been better for them? Look at the screen here, verse 21. It would have been better for them. This is an expansion of what we saw yesterday, right? It's worse for them. Well, why is it worse or better? What's this all about? Matthew chapter 10, verse 14. If anyone will not receive you as he sends out his his uh, emissaries, his evangelists, or listen to your words, he says, shake the dust from your feet, a sign of, of protest as you leave the house or that town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Why? Because they are giving these words, the words of Christ, the gospel, they'll get clarity about who Jesus is, that he's here, you should respond to him, you ought to put your trust in him, and they're going to reject it. If they reject it, if they do reject it, then you should protest and you should just remember how much worse it is than even the most flagrant and, and the most uh, um, terrible and immoral society of the Old Testament that didn't have the clarity that was coming from the commandments of the Lord. The holy commandments delivered to the people that they get is going to raise their level of judgment. That's the point. Look at the next section here in Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. He began to denounce the cities, Jesus did, where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. They heard it, but they didn't repent. He says, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these enemies of ancient Israel, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. They would have repented. But I tell you, it would be more bearable, here he says it again, on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Why? Because Tyre and Sidon was worse than you? Well, not necessarily. They're only worse insofar as you had more light to respond to and you didn't respond to it. And, and you, Capernaum, he says, you will, will you be exalted to heaven? Apparently they had a complex of being this great, fantastic group of people in the city of Capernaum. Will you be, uh, or will you be brought down? I'm sorry, you will, definitive statement. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you in Capernaum had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Why? Because they would have repented. But I tell you, it'll be more tolerable, there it is again, on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So the point is, it'd be better for them because all of the commandments, all the truth that they learned is going to make them accountable. That's what the truth does. It makes us responsible for knowing it. Even in the Christian life, not just for non-Christians, 
right? But in the Christian life, look at James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers. Well, teachers are going to get exposed to a lot of good information, a lot of the commandment of the Lord. They'll get all the intricacies of it because they're studying it all the time. For you know that we who teach, and James puts himself in that category, will be judged with greater strictness. Now, the Bema Seat of Christ is not about condemnation. It's about reward, and it's about suffering loss for things that you could have gotten and didn't get. Nevertheless, there's a strictness there. Why? Because the knowledge that a teacher has of the Holy Commandments. Philippians chapter 3, good reminder for all of us, whether you're a teacher or not, he says, Philippians 3.15, let those of us who are mature think in this way, all the things that he had said previously in Philippians, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. In other words, you need to keep adhering and, and conforming your mind to the truth that you've learned. He said, and only, this whole point of this is made, but, but make sure that you hold true to what we've attained. Don't take a step back. Don't lose track of what you've learned. Be sure that you do what you have been taught and that you respond rightly to the truth and the light that you have because you're going to be held responsible for it. So better for them, even though this is talking about non-Christians, certainly a lesson for us as Christians to make sure we're living up to the light and the truth that, it, that we have, that we've been exposed to, even as we've studied here every day in Second Peter. I hope that you take these things to heart. You make sure and apply them to your life because God will certainly hold us accountable for them. And we know that the false teachers are going to incur a great, great judgment because of the way they have dabbled in um, the, the, the Bible and the things that they had known. So more tomorrow as we continue. One last verse here in chapter 2 as we look at the proverb that applies to all of this. So we'll see you back here again tomorrow. <music>